Welcome, everyone, to the Pop Culture Podcast by Fantastic Geek. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Hello, everyone. Here today to talk to you about our impressions of The Rise of Skywalker, the final Star Wars movie until they make a new Star Wars movie, which will not be the final Star Wars movie until there is a final Star Wars movie. Pete, what were your first impressions here of the film? When you consider everything that they had to juggle, and we're going to cite chapter and verse in terms of that in this podcast, um, I don't think you could have drawn up a better possible outcome. I have to say, Pete, I go to see so many of these movies that we end up podcasting nine times out of ten. I see it with you the once, and in my mind, you know, eh, I don't need to see it again. Or if I do see it again, it's no rush. And at a certain point, it's three weeks later, and now we're eight weeks until the digital release, or you know, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of thing. And so many times I come home, and my wife says, so how was it? And I go, eh, pretty good. And she's like, okay, another pretty good. This was an electric viewing experience. Uh, there was a moment in the film, uh, I guess I'll state it now, when you see all the ships that have responded, I felt I felt electricity in my body, second only to which in all of the movies I've ever seen in a, in a theater, that was second wow. only to the reveal in The Sixth Sense, which is never going to get beat on any level. Um, and then to just have this sense of effervescence, I woke up in the middle of the night just happy because... The movie imbued a sense of hope, a sense of happiness, uh, and most importantly, tied together not just its own plot, the plot of this trilogy, but really meaningfully tied together all three trilogies. And I think when you look at what they've produced here and the reaction to it, it forms a logical conclusion. Not a rebuttal of The Last Jedi, as so many people have attempted to make this be seen as because let's understand how the narrative has worked and when i say the narrative i'm talking about star wars i'm not talking about the nonsense that people have attempted to attach to it particularly in the last two years but you know luke skywalker has has never ever been wrong before right uh he didn't lose a hand in rushing in to save his friends before he was ready um he definitely did not screw up with Ben Solo at all. And he also did not, uh, at the 11th hour, go from burning the Jedi tree with the sacred Jedi texts to not doing it to having Yoda do it. So everything that happened in The Last Jedi mattered. Um J.J. Abrams has said himself, and there's been such an attempt to make a beef between J.J. Abrams' Rise of Skywalker and Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi, that it was an undoing, that it was a retconning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And J.J. Abrams described the choices and the options that Ryan Johnson handed over to them as a gift. So... There you go. You can attempt to say that's PR spin, what have you. But if you watch these nine movies and Last Jedi being 
like Empire so radically different than what came before, um, things have to continue to evolve and they continued those storylines. Now, Pete, let's talk about the rebellion against this movie, the move to use your protest vote to go see Cats. This is a true thing, listeners. <laughs> yes. uh, Pete, Cats expected to open up at less than $8 million for the entire weekend. Oh. And but open which version of place. Cats, Matt? Which version of Cats? Uh, There's Pete, already a special edition. Uh, that also not a joke. If you if you were unlucky enough to go see Cats on Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, uh, there will be a different version, uh, albeit with different effects. It's not expected to affect the runtime. Uh, on Sunday in some theaters that are connected to the satellite download thing, uh, otherwise, Tuesday, when hard drives are FedExed to theaters. Uh, so, yes, there is seriously already a cat special edition, which is rolling out uh, today as we record this. So that has um, ruined your cat's childhood. <laughs> uh, Pete, I would say, judging by the reviews for cats, it has ruined its own childhood. But uh, on the topic of uh, of box office, uh, Rise of Skywalker having the third uh, biggest uh, December uh, opening weekend, uh, expected now to come in in the neighborhood of about $185 million, a tad down from what the estimates were uh, this time yesterday. But uh, I quote uh, Deadline in its article saying that um, in the minds of theater owners and executives, the difference between 170, pardon me, $180 million, $190 million, it's like no big deal one way or the other. Uh, is this lower than the preceding two films? Yes, but this is not hashtag Star Wars is dead. This is not hashtag we took down Star Wars. This is a massive release of a movie that, side note, if you want to use these box office numbers to cut against the film, be aware that there was a little bit more uh, time when The Last Jedi came out relative to uh, the Christmas holiday. So in terms of where these three days fall relative to, you know, relative to the holidays, it is slightly different. So let's talk again maybe after two weekends have gone by to really compare the two films, etc. But this is a super strong opening. Because the critics' reviews broke this movie too, right? Pete, I was surprised to see... Uh, how low the Rotten Tomato score was at 58%. Um, I can only speculate as to why kind of the critical voice was on the lower end. Personally, maybe this is a little biased on my end. Maybe it's them just trying to get out from under, from, from you know, what were uh, better Last Jedi reviews. I don't know. Um, I think part of what's great about what we do is Pete, rather like the Millennium Falcon, Fantastic Geek is nimble enough to kind of say what we want, share our own views, and not sit and say, well, how's it going to bounce this way? How's it going to bounce that way? Oh, man, we're going to get savaged by you know people in the Chicagoland area for my Chicago newspaper review or, or things of that sort. Um, I would say, Pete, critics got it wrong. This is a delightful, enchanting movie. Uh, I think that I would put it in of the nine movies. I would personally put it in fourth place, which is you know high pride of place indeed. And the the notion that this movie is going to live on in theaters 
as a success for many, many weeks to come and then be a fitting capstone to these nine movies for generations to come is not understated. It is a fact. I've not had a conversation with a person that I know who's seen it, who has been disappointed. And I think that speaks to the overall product and the trajectory that we're on. Star Wars is super healthy. What have they learned with these five films that have come out over the last four years? They need a little bit more time in between them. I maintain that if Solo comes out in December of 2018, as opposed to five and a half months after um, The Last Jedi, it's a far more successful vehicle. Um, I maintain as well that if there were three years instead of the two, and, and who doesn't like getting your Star Wars movie two years after the last one, and between Solo and this one, 18 months between them uh, to get new Star Wars movies. I don't know who, but they need a little bit more breathing room in between. These are not Marvel movies, and I'm not denigrating Marvel movies in terms of you know, what we do on the Pop Culture Podcast and all the fantastic geek uh, feeds that cover those movies and those TV shows. We pay attention to all of it. But they're different enough from one another. Star Wars movies are not very different from one another. They're massive, massive tent poles. Uh, there's fewer of them compared to the Marvel movies at this point. Uh, no surprise, Disney wants to take this into the Marvel direction. And that rightly should be in 2019, almost 2020, the, the edict. Uh, no wonder that Kevin Feige is uh, moving through the Lucasfilm system now. He's got a pitch in play. He'll eventually uh, have a movie there, and uh, it'll go that way. But, you know, we've had the last Skywalker movie in 1983. We've had the last Skywalker movie in 2005. We've had the last Skywalker movie in 2019. Daisy Ridley is 27 years old. If you think that this character will not return to this role in some way, shape, or form, uh, come make a bet with me because it's going to happen. Same with John Boyega, um, particularly with what goes on in this film. Well, Pete, diving into Rise of Skywalker a bit deeper here, this a product of two screenwriting teams, Chris Terrio and J.J. Abrams, and uh, Derek Connolly and Colin Trevorrow. I think that, does it show that maybe this isn't the product of one writer? Uh, it might, in parts. Um, I think it's difficult to... It's difficult sometimes to compare the newest Star Wars movie to the ones that you have memorized. Uh, you know, G George Lucas was the greatest Episode Four director until Irving Kirshner came along, and and et cetera, et cetera. Just to use directing as a as a comparison there. Um, to me, the the biggest area where maybe there was some some written incongruity, it was something that had to be written around and i refer of course to carrie fisher's presence in the film so 
Derek Connolly and Colin Trevorrow were moving on episode nine before The Last Jedi came out. And though there's two years in terms of uh, our time between these movies, it's still a, a three year plus process. Um, so uh, Colin Trevorrow, who's most notably directed uh, Jurassic World, um, he was dumb enough to make the statement with his boss being definitely the most powerful woman in Hollywood right now, arguably the most powerful ever in Kathleen Kennedy, that women don't want to direct big budget films, which is grossly inaccurate and just dumb. So surprise, surprise, he had been relieved of uh, the directing and uh, co-writing duties by the time Last Jedi hit theaters. J.J. Abrams had been brought back in. And at that point, they were dealing with an 18-month release schedule from uh, Last Jedi, which obviously was pushed back to Christmas this year. And they went back to Bones with the story, and they built everything around what they had left of Carrie Fisher. The edict at that time was no CGI, that killing her in the opening crawl or off screen would be disrespectful. And not to recast, which would have been an absolute mistake. So to go back and reforge the story, to use all that footage up uh, and and do it in the most respectful way. The, the unfortunate thing we're never going to know in in this reality she was to be the last jedi and there's echoes of that in this film uh this ninth film was to be her movie in the way that um mark hamill is the you know big legacy character featured in the last jedi and uh harrison ford in the force awakens so they got everything that they could and I think very tastefully incorporated it. Um, I know you have feelings about how it might reflect going forward. Yeah, I mean, if you watch with the eyes of they've cobbled together outtakes, alternate takes, uh, existing footage, etc., from the other two films, then to see how that is edited in, that might be the most, quote, obvious error, close quote, of the film. But fact, she died before they started filming this movie. Fact, they wanted her in the movie, and they wanted to use real footage. 20 years from now, will anyone care or notice the editing around her absence? I I kind of think not. I think it's one of those things that you're aware of as you watch it. I mean, Pete, I blew somebody's mind on Friday saying... Carrie Fisher died before the movie started and they thought I had spoiled something and it was no, no, no. The actress who's in this movie did not film anything for this movie. So if you're hyper aware of that, if you're told that, of course you're going to see shots like um, she starts to say something, then you cut to a close up and hear the rest of the dialogue off screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then the the other character, let's say Ray, 
uh, delivers dialogue, and then you cut to a wordless reaction shot of, of General Leia. Okay, we can understand how that's not normally how conversations are edited, and we can understand why. Give it time. I mean, I'm not saying you know we all are going to forget, but give it time as a new generation watches these movies without any connection to the actors. And it's just going to be, to my mind, it's going to be completely logical to a newer generation that the newer generation is the one who stands tall at the end of this film and the older generation are the ones who move into the background because... Pete, as as we get ready to uh, you know close out 2019 and start a new decade, etc., time does march on, much as we might not want it to. Hashtag save my Luke. Hashtag save my 1994 Captain Kirk. Hashtag you know uh, no way you can uh, whatever recast Spartacus. It's only Kirk Douglas. Hashtag etc. This is just how life goes. I wish I could see it through the eyes of somebody who doesn't know the reality of what's happened. Um, there are deleted scenes to the force awakens that are available that are on blu-ray dvd um i haven't gone through on disney plus i know they've you know really separated themselves from netflix in the way that they include bonus footage um there's a line that she says never underestimate a droid that's in a deleted scene that i've watched from force awakens uh, they've grafted it together. I, I think they handled it in the best possible way. And then as you consider, as the film goes on, obviously we have less and less and less of her leading up to her character's demise and the way that that is used to inform the story. Yeah, I mean, I think just as with, um, just as with Furious 7, Nobody asks for this. Nobody asks for a lead in the movie to pass away before you have enough footage to tell the story that you want. Uh, you know, Paul Walker midway and Carrie Fisher prior to it. So I think you get, not even get, you must judge a film like this, at least with the Carrie Fisher stuff. If you want to have quibbles in other areas, fine. But you, you can only wag your finger so much at what they didn't, get the the shots they didn't go back and get of her when she wasn't there on the set at all it it comes with its own asterisk and i have no problem with how she was used again aside from being aware that there was some wonky editing but they're editing in the footage that they have to tell the story that they could with the footage that they did have and that's just the way it is unfortunately tangentially that the opening crawl would begin with the phrase the dead speak um, completely independent of the, uh, you know, Carrie Fisher subtext and, uh, maybe the most unorthodox opening sequence of any of the nine films. In your mind, what made it so unorthodox? Well, we begin with a, a montage, uh, that we've got several minutes that go by before there's any dialogue that it's this really kind of out there, even for Star Wars, Kylo Ren slaughtering people. It's not completely clear what's going on. And, you know, after the fact, OK, he's these people come to find out that, uh, you know, from the 
visual dictionary and, and other things uh, were on Mustafar, um, had the uh, Sith Wayfinder that he's using it now to, to move through the, uh, the red highway to the Sith world of uh, Exegol and to reincorporate uh, the Emperor uh, Palpatine into the story but very, very different than something we've ever seen before with these saga films. I agree, asterisk, for anybody who's upset, like, who's, uh, who's upset by, oh, they don't immediately make it clear what's going on. Can you think back to the first time you saw A New Hope with no knowledge of Star Wars? They say some words on the screen, okay, that sets things up, then all of a sudden there's ships and there's characters that you don't know and there's plot that you don't understand, so yes, it's unorthodox in terms of its delivery, but y- you know, I think sometimes fans lose sight of the fact that these all these Star Wars films were new once. They're just not new except for this one right now. Uh, it's kind of similar to James Bond. There are some terrible James Bond movies out there that you can watch and love and enjoy when it's on uh, on a marathon or you know pop out the DVDs or whatever. You know, there's nothing wrong with you only live twice while you're sitting there with a with a hearty beverage and some snacky snacks over you know over the holiday break. Would you go pay? See, you know, how would you feel if you went to go pay and see that? You know, back in the '60s, pretty terrible. But that's not to say that it is objectively bad. Nor am I saying Rise of Skywalker is bad. Sometimes just new is different when compared to compared to that which is already familiar. And speaking of familiar. Pete, we have Palpatine back. Uh, One of the examples of this film taking a potential loose thread slash I made my YouTube vids and blogs and nobody ever talked about the the Darth Plagueis thing. And now it turns out that 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 was a loose thread that was used all these years later. Yeah, despite the fact that it was always the plan to return to the emperor and bringing Ian McDiarmid back uh, to to play this legendary character that he played in Return of the Jedi. It's not him originally in Empire Strikes Back. They've they've since put him into Empire Strikes Back. That he played, he was the big villain in the three prequel movies. Okay, so four times there, he's played this character five times. That he now. Uh, plays in opposition of the the last generation of these characters that you look one through nine and he's the overarching uh, you know antagonist always there usually in the shadows sometimes uh, in the forefront and in the crawl they make it clear there's been this uh, transmission in, in the emperor's voice and rapidly in the film, everyone becomes aware of it. And we have these Sith underpinnings all along. There are Snoke's, this is plural, in uh, tubes on Exegol. Uh, we're told right away, and it's a great uh, sound effect when uh, Palpatine tells Kylo Ren, who sees him as a as a threat, wants to wipe him out. Uh, that he's been every voice inside his head in in Snoke's voice, in 
James Earl Jones, Darth Vader voice in his own and to set up the conflict between the arch villain and the intermediary villain and the whole story for this final episode. We also get the reveal of the creation of the final order fleet, which initially I was like, wait, how could they build all these things? But I think it's also important to remember the star Wars storytelling universe is not meant to be an analog for ours, unlike, say, Star Trek. Star Trek, hey, the Federation is the United Nations, which means the Federation is basically like most of Earth. And when there's bad guys, it's like those other countries. And we kind of, now we have satellites to see when nukes are being built in North Korea and things like that. That is not Star Wars, where they're off in some, you know, whatever it's called, the, the, the outlands or the unknown region or whatever. And this stuff is being built. Why? Because story, because there's a fantasy element here, because nobody questions how uh, how Sauron is able to make this giant army in Lord of the Rings because it's weird and wacky stuff. And we should be applying those same fantasy rules here where how was he able to do all this? Because he did, because we saw them all launch, because there they are. And throughout the film, it becomes increasingly the the cause of the resistance something that other systems people are hesitant are fearful of responding to this overwhelming obstacle i mean the the allegiant general pride character at one point it's either a thousand or ten thousand fold that they've increased their forces I, <laughs> I think he said 10,000 fold. Yeah, I, I think I think it was the outlandish, the more outlandish of the two as well. And that just stacks the deck. You, you know that it's bad. And this has always been an underdog story from start to finish. And the galaxy is terrified. And Poe tells us later on recaps. We put the message out at crate. No one responded. We're putting the message out again. We're just going to have to have faith in people. Like this movie places faith in the audience to get it, and it does. And I would, I would, I, Pete, I would not bring too much real world into our fake Star Wars universe, but I would say this if, if there is a message baked in there that, hey, you thought the bad guys were gone and there weren't many of them, and you've been recently surprised in the last couple of years that there's more of them and it hasn't been a fluke. And they seem to be everywhere right now. They seem to be the majority. It might feel that way, says the movie. And you might say they've increased 10,000-fold. But have faith in each other. Have faith that there are more of us than there are more of them. Uh, or than there are of them. And have faith that sticking on the right path is going to have the right result. You know, again, I don't think J.J. Abrams set out to make a critique of, you know, the last 10 years, 5 years, three years, whatever it is, but part of Star Wars, part of any art is to see our world in it. And there's that in there too. It's very interesting that all three of these films, none of them begin outright with Ray, yet she is the soul of all three. And when we catch up with Ray and there's been a year of their time that's gone past as opposed to, Force Awakens, Last Jedi being continuous, what's she doing? She's levitating rocks. She's levitating herself. She's attempting 
to commune with all the Jedi past, something that will later happen at the climax of the film. And, um, you know, this, this resistance base that they've established on Agent Kloss and her relationship with Princess Leia and the majority of the Carrie Fisher footage goes and belongs right here. And story-wise, this is the most effective Jedi training that we've ever seen in live-action Star Wars. I think we lose track of the fact Luke didn't finish his training. Uh, we get somewhat retcon, somewhat not in this movie, Luke training Leia. Well, he Pete, he didn't get his Jedi teaching certificate because he left school <laughs> early. Uh, and as for, for as much as we see a functioning uh, Jedi order in the prequels, it's also a dysfunctional Jedi order that, uh, let me check, sleeps on the rise of Palpatine and Darth Vader. So as much as they had the structure there, how effective was, was their training, was their set of skills? We see here the best trained Jedi uh, that, we've ever, that we've ever seen, I'd argue. And Pete, that might open the door later for relearning old things that are new to Star Wars, but old old skills that maybe have been forgotten in the past thousand generations of Jedi. Daisy Ridley was a revelation in the force awakens, uh, exploding onto the scene, but this is clearly her best performance to date. Uh, the, the arc of emotions that she's taken through in this episode and where we ultimately leave her. And I, I just, I feel so passionate about, this character um really really hoping we will return to her i i don't know how you can look at her relative age and the success of these films and not think at some point even if it's a cameo even if it is a you know down the road well you know she established a, a new jedi learning annex or what have you that uh we're really kind of bound to return to it at, at some point um but once we've, you know, picked up with her and that she's doing this training, even to the point where she does not feel that she has earned the lightsaber yet. Luke's reconstructed lightsaber last seen shattered in two at the end of Last Jedi um, that we've got the boys out on a mission here that a first order spy ultimately learned to be General Hux of the first order is feeding information to uh, a character named Bulio, kind of an intermediary that they're handing off to the Millennium Falcon. This was actually the preview scene that uh, the Mandalorian featured the day before the film opened. Bulio with a unique alien head, uh, all the better to see it cut off uh, a yes. little bit later in the film. <laughs> that was a great scene. And I mean, I mean, to be clear, I mean, that's like we get we get so much great head design from him so that he's immediately readable once decapitated. Uh, Pete, on the notion of Hux as the First Order spy, that reveal later in the film um, where you know he's redeemed, to me, seemed a little cutesy-wootsy, but hey, the dude has been the face of the First Order and the Nazi metaphor in Star Wars for these three films. A little redemption and a shot in the gut that kills him, that's ultimately all right with me. Right. I mean, he asks them to shoot him in the arm. They go for the leg. He's got the cane. He's got the bandage, which is a, 
a little goofy for me. Like, come on, they don't have the 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 back to pod already around his uh, his leg or whatever. And of course, he gets gunned down. Boom, we've we've found the traitor. And it, it's shocking and it's effective. We also have in the course of the story here some conflict amongst our core group. We got some Ray Poe conflict, some Finn Poe. Um, but like the franchise, ultimately they're all going to go together. Yeah, that Ray and Poe meet at the very end of the Last Jedi, and you know there's been so much talk that they they never got the group adventure, and and that's what this film finally is. Um, that they don't get along. That he's taxing the the Falcon, something that she feels very attached to since her you know relationship with. Han Solo and bringing her into the story that he's light speed skipping and, and that great sequence of the, the different locations where they pop up and uh, the, the frenetic pace of that, that Finn and Poe have a conflict later on. And, and in the meat of this movie that they need to reconcile how they feel about one another. But I, I think it's a meta statement that, that we all go together, that how are we going to fix this thing? We're, we're going to do it all together. Pete, a question about light speed skipping here. Uh, and it's okay to say because story, how is it that the TIE fighters, which I, w- I will assume are light speed capable, uh, how is it that they're able to track the Millennium Falcon? Is it just because there is this shorter skip? Or how's that work? Is this something that's existed in the books in the extended universe before or is it just because story we had never seen tie fighters go to hyperspace before but obviously these are first order tie fighters um so it's the the second generation and then established again in the last jedi you can be tracked through hyperspace now uh so that that exists in a previous film that to me says okay this 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 is now a thing and you can do it. Uh, the upshot is a really raucous uh, space fight sequence in the early part of this film after we've established the conflict and stacked the deck against our heroes. The story moves on to Pasana, the desert planet where they have uh, smoky bomb things and all sorts of dancing and PD. Burning Man, come on. <laughs> Burning Man, Space Burning Man, courtesy of Space Min, uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda. Um, and a really, really heartfelt, nice reintroduction of Lando. There was applause in our theater when his mask came off, and it just. Pete. Maybe he's put on a pound or two since 1983. Still the coolest cat to ever grace the screen. The man is 82 years old. And you have to understand that when Carrie Fisher ultimately left us, that the logical pivot was let's bring Billy D. Williams back and let's put him in a bigger part. There was a investigation with last jedi do we bring him in do we put him in canto bite and they didn't want to do him that way they didn't want to make him the dj character they didn't want to make him the the contact they needed there uh so 
things work out for a reason and to have him be this hermit to reuse the trope of Lando being in disguise to help to get our current generation of heroes faced in the right direction. I mean, Lando and Luke had gone on this adventure at one point and what do you know, they weren't unsuccessful. So they hand it to the next generation and okay, you go find your answers now. And it's there where we get this really, really fun uh, speeder chase uh, in the desert. They can fly now. They got rocket packs. They have, you know, jet ski things that can help launch the, uh, the what, rocket troopers into the air. Yeah. And, you know, just kind of a classic Star Wars run and gun scene. Yeah. And to head out into the open desert, they, they went to Jordan again to film. Um, and uh, they're looking for Ochi of Bastoon's ship, this connection to the Sith. He was a, a Jedi hunter. They ultimately wind up in these uh, gravel pits and the caves underneath, and they find the remains of uh, the, the character that Luke and Lando had been looking for. No wonder he couldn't find them. And uh, that there's this snake underneath, and it's injured, and Ray is able to heal it because she has the Force. So can Star Wars introduce new Force powers uh, again, as I said before, Pete? Can it do that with the backdrop of Luke's incomplete training, uh, Leia being trained by the incompletely trained Luke, uh, with the backdrop of the uh, Jedi uh, of the prequel Jedi that lose their power and are ineffective at stopping the Sith. Yes, of course we can get new powers, particularly if you just get your head wrapped around it as old powers have been rediscovered. Everything is all right. Furthermore, Pete, I watched the Mandalorian this week before going to see rise of Skywalker. It's not a new power. Uh, it was shown there. Hashtag yeah. it's all connected. Hashtag five G's coming for you. Marvel coming <laughs> for you. Star Wars five G's taking over everything. Five years after Return of the Jedi, an untrained 50-year-old child is healing Carl Weathers so that Ray can't reach out through the Force and, and see an animal is injured and heal it. That's just stupid to say, well, she's a Mary Sue because she figured it out. Uh, self awakening an awakening in the force it, it's almost like we've been there before well and i think you you touch on another undercurrent of some of the anger towards this film where it's not really at this this film it's you know the anger of some people is i am upset by empowered women and people of color male female whatever it might be uh coming together to possibly work together because gulp there are more of them than there are of we the the angry folk so i think that's that's feeding some of the anger but pete that too shall fade away you know ryan johnson continues to get unfairly assailed and give the guy every credit and and what has he done he's he's gotten a hit movie out of that abuse knives out is based in part uh by the uh or on the uh nonsense that people have directed at him uh, since he directed a Star Wars film and still stands to direct a trilogy. And I'm really, really hopeful that uh, that will still take place despite 
you know, he doesn't need to do it. And the guff that he takes on a daily basis and people, some people, Matt, um, wanted Luke Skywalker, just as is stated in The Last Jedi, to walk out in front of the First Order with a laser sword and to kill them all, to just use the force and crush them into a ball and do a thing that they saw in a video game. And there was a response that Ryan Johnson had this week that, you know, Luke is not a video game character. He's a character that, just like any other protagonist in any grand story, can make and learn from mistakes. And that's okay. And that's the hero's path. And to have that take place and to ultimately learn from it and then to have the current protagonist in Ray learn things, um, get stronger as she goes along, develop her powers and take the mantle of the Jedi to a new place by the end of the film with all the previous Jedi standing, urging her to get back up. Um, so meaningful. And Pete, I know Finn has this line, Ray, there's something I have to tell you. A lot of debate online. Pete, what did Finn have to tell her? I mean, the low hanging fruit is I love you. And he clearly has had feelings for her at points throughout these three films and they've been together and then they've been separated. They go on this, this last adventure together. Um, but in context of multiple points throughout the film, he talks about how the force brought him and Ray together about how he has this feeling that this is here about, well, that's the, uh, star destroyer with the, uh, the, the control mechanism right now. It seems very, very clear and it's since been confirmed by J.J. Abrams in a uh, panel after a viewing of the film. He does indeed have the force. But we've established again, the force is not a thing that just Jedi possess. It's in, in this universe, every living thing. So to be able to tap into it, to be more aware, sensitive, trained, as opposed to just being strong and it's it's in a bloodline and it can only be in that bloodline we've established that's not the case that line and, and everything that you just said had me wondering if maybe there is some sort of subtext in the background of you know the the prequels showed us this great imbalance to the force or the hope you know the chosen one he's supposed to bring balance to the force well there's way more jedi than there are sith at least Let's let's leave the, the the reveal of, you know, the Sith, you know, arena party uh, at the end. Let's just kind of <laughs> stick that up in the corkboard for a second. As far as we know, in the prequels, there's a handful of Sith and there's thousands and thousands of Jedi. So one imbalance might be way too many Jedi, even if they are well-meaning. Uh, what do we get by the end of the prequels? We get, you know, all but a handful of Jedi. The the number hoped to be hoped by Palpatine to be zero. Um, and very few Sith. All right, well, that still leads to problems. My take of all the the Finn Force-sensitive stuff add to it the very end of uh, of uh, The Last Jedi where there's the the kids, one of which, you know, Broom Boy, appears to be Force-sensitive. Maybe the way balance is brought to the Force is 
increased force sensitivity. Like it's not, you know, however the midichlorians have chosen people in the past or whatever that, you know, touched by the hand of God thing has been, maybe it now becomes more universal, no pun intended. Um, Again, I'm not saying that's something that this story commits to, but Star Wars is always something that leaves you wanting more, always this, this story that is too big for any one telling. And maybe that's, that's an evolution of the force where, you know, and why now? Well, why now is because they're making the movies now and the movies aren't taking place 10 years prior in the timeline. But maybe there is this increased force sensitivity by, by many leading to most or something like that in the ages down the line. And therein lies the theme. It's the correction of the force, perhaps the Jedi as soldiers, as opposed to peacekeepers, taxing the force. Yoda, Mace Windu talk about their blindness to the larger plot that uh, Palpatine and the Sith coordinated. So it makes sense, again, that all this would happen. We get uh, some bits of story here. The finding of the Sith dagger, uh, the Chewie ship explosion, perhaps the Sith dagger. It's a very Goonies moment. You know, hold it up to, to be a map for your way. The Chewie ship explosion, uh, kind of very Raiders of the Ark, uh, Marion fake out. I don't know how intentional this was to those two films. I don't know how 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 broad it was just in terms of, you know, using plot elements and here with a thousand faces and all of that. But it filled my 80s child heart with some warmth. The dagger had a mission to kill the heirs of Palpatine, to bring this child back to him, to reinvigorate him with life. And he lucked into well, there's two Force-sensitive children. I'll drain them both and, you know, get my ring finger back. Um, the, the chewy stuff, all right, you see him captured. Later, you see a ship going up. I really enjoyed the display of the Force tug between Rey and uh, Kylo Ren and, and then... Okay, she's she's shot lightning out of her hand. This isn't good. It all goes along with this reveal of who she is and uh, her place in a larger story. Uh, we also have the introduction of the droid D.O. Pete, can anyone survive with him being voiced by J.J. Abrams? Why wouldn't they? <laughs> Because J.J. ruined my childhood with Star Trek 09, Star Trek in the Darkness, and The Force Awakens, which is why I now watch, still watch Star Trek and Star Wars. Uh, he, he didn't. We've, we've got to move past. It's maybe the worst cliche of this century that childhoods can be ruined. You, you ruined your own childhood. <laughs> indeed pete maybe that's maybe that's something we can look forward to in 2020 is the end of the claim that childhoods are ruined it's okay if you don't like this movie on its uh you know demerits it's okay if you don't like the new visuals of star trek or whatever it is uh, to to have it retroactively take away the things that you loved uh pete i don't know if i mentioned it on the podcast i know it's an example i return to from time to time just in conversation when I was 10 years old, Howard the Duck was maybe the best movie I ever saw. It was funny. 
It was action-packed. It had Leah Thompson sometimes run a little bit less. Uh, it was perfect for me as a 10-year-old. And then, you know, didn't see it for many years. And in my late 20s, to discover that it is a terrible movie. Not even like cheese watch or sit and go, oh, I remember this takes me back to my childhood. It is just awful. And I just had this moment of like, it was like the reverse of Ratatouille. I wasn't transported back to childhood. I was told that sometimes childish things are childish, period, the end finito. It's okay to have those different phases in your life, and you can like things, and J.J. Abrams doesn't need to take it away, even if you don't like what J.J. Abrams did. When I was seven years old, Return of the Jedi was the greatest thing I had ever seen in my life. And then you come to realize, you know, eight, five, however many years later, in every way, The Empire Strikes Back is the superior movie. So while one is more colorful and has space teddy bears, the other has the greatest cliffhanger of all time and Boba Fett and Carbonite and Hoth and Adats and all these other things and, and Yoda. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're not really qualified when you're young to make those greatest critical judgments. Things seem good and you enjoy them and you can still enjoy them later though they not be the zenith that they might have been before pete all i can say to that is i know let's talk about the knights of ren i feel like there had been story build up maybe more so in the first film than the second uh to finally get them in full force here no pun intended maybe a little meh but certainly less meh than what I have heard but did not experience uh, as the the Boba Fett buzz ahead of Empire. Oh, man, there's a toy. Oh, it's even more difficult to get. Wait until you see him. Okay, he was in Empire a little bit. He's going to be in Jedi. Oh, he just fell on the thing. We get more Knights of Ren than we do Boba Fett, and Boba Fett is still pretty awesome. So, again, 10 years from now, who's going to be hurt that we didn't get more Knights of Ren? I think no one. But I think we got what we needed to get out of them. Uh, what's the ultimate reveal that they came from the unknown regions that they were to back up Kylo Ren and ultimately shepherd him to where he would go and meet the emperor. Um, they, they are the, for not having faces beneath their helmets, they are the face version of all the Sith in the Colosseum there. And when Ben Solo ultimately takes them on and takes them out, uh, brings their arc to a close. Yeah. And I think what is their function in the story? The function in the story is to be, you know, the, the baddest hombres that are out there, not stormtroopers, not death troopers, but even worse. Um, Maybe not force sensitive, maybe, you know, maybe yes, certainly, you know, crazy weapons and kind of just the super, I was gonna say ninjas. I mean, ninjas mixed with SEAL Team 6 kind of stuff. And that's what the story needs. And that's what the story gives us. You know, again, I return to sometimes Star Wars is bigger in our memories than it actually was. Like the fact that Pete, you grew up with one two and a half hour movie or less than two and a half hour movie every three years and then you had to fill it in with 
mm-hmm. seeing it again and playing with the toys and reading the books and all of that. Same thing here, you know, lots of people are going to join Knights of Ren stuff in the future. For right now, all right, they're the necessary size for this film. Yeah, and it doesn't all need to be explained, you know, an ancillary benefit of these films is the design there's just so much that goes into it so as i have my rise of skywalker visual dictionary sitting here on my uh on my table that a knight of ren is prominently featured on the front and that there is merchandise and everything else i mean come on matt you need to do nothing more than see that these guys fly around in the only ship we've ever seen in nine movies that that smokes they're (laughs) they're they're polluting they they might be vaping they're bad dudes they wear all black okay the redeemed bad guy takes a bunch of them out because uh, we've never seen this trope either. We've we've never seen a bunch of masked uh, guards around a big bad that don't get each an individual backstory. Well, this one has a scythe because he was a farmer, and this one has a gun because he's a good shooter, and this one has an axe because he's an executioner. No, they're bad dudes in helmets that wear all black that – uh, you know, mob up with Kylo Ren. And if you're not fine with that, then go elsewhere. Pete, let's talk C-3PO. I saw the, the, the most recent preview, however, you know, whenever it came out a month ago, six weeks ago, whatever it was, uh, maybe even more than that. Um, and, you know, one last look at my friends. And I was like, oh, that's nice because this is one last look at the movie. And then you go online and you say, oh, no, this is proof that 3PO is going to die. I was like, oh, silly people. And then as we're watching the movie, I, I don't know if Chewbacca was back at this point in the story yet when that when that line uh, comes across. But I had already I, I was already shaken once with the idea that they were going to kill off Chewbacca and be like, guys, this is tone deaf. How do you you can kill off the major characters, but those secondary supporting characters you can't. And, and then they did. And then whatever. And then with Seath. 3PO, I'm like, they're really going to do it. I bought it hook, line, and sinker. Um, and the flip side is I love that we get a hand-waving, literal rebooting, no harm, no foul. He's back except for this one small adventure. You get to do both. The the two are so very different yet intertwined. So to pull the Raiders of the Lost Ark basket game with Chewbacca is one thing. And We've unfortunately lost the first actor in, in Peter Mayhew this year who played Chewie and who wasn't playing the character anymore. That now belongs to uh, Jonas uh, Sumantu, or very difficult name to, to say here. Uh, I think it's Jonas, actually. Um, but with uh, Anthony Daniels as the only actor who appears in all nine films to suddenly be in this situation. And nobody's done it yet in terms of the, uh, the amount of screen time, but I would argue he's probably got as much dialogue as he has in any of the films, maybe more and is in the most important spot. I mean, remember he's always 
the sidekick to R2-D2 as the hero. And here he gets to have his biggest moment. I feel too like having grown up after these the, the original trilogy had come out, whenever there was the audiobook there Anthony Daniels was. I mean certainly others, don't get me wrong, but Anthony Daniels was always reliable for the audiobook. Anthony Daniels was always the one, you know, in the uh the NPR radio dramas done for uh what was then called Star Wars and Empire. I know other people come back, including, I think, Mark Hamill, but 3PO is there the whole time. Like, Anthony Daniels really has been that through line. And I know we've said it before, Pete, but you think about the number of times that Anthony Daniels has put on the 3PO mask for one last time. Last day of filming A New Hope. Last day of Jedi. Last day of Revenge of the Sith. And then now, the last day for this. And it's just, you know, it's it's astonishing the journey that he's been on as much as anyone else. Yeah. And I think when they looked back at this story and are we ever going to find out how much was in the original draft that, that Trevorrow was working towards directing and, you know, what was J.J. Uh, Chris Terrio specific stuff? Chris Terrio, you know, wins a oscar for argo and then makes such cinematic legends like batman v superman and justice league so believe me when i saw he was pairing with jj abrams i got concerned but whoever's idea it was to feature c-3po in the way that they did it really really works and by the time we're at kajimi and uh, we've got to see the diminutive droid smith, Babu Freak, who is a great character addition here at a time when, you know, the, the final installment, you're, you're introducing very few characters. But I think, you know, him and Zori Bliss, played by Carrie Russell, um, and even uh, Janna, really, really good additions to this film. Yeah, Babu Frick is a really fun presence. Pete, can I say with confidence, almost entirely uh, a, a a puppet? That's kind of how yeah. we read. Yeah. Um, I, can I ask too, Pete? This is not on our notes at all, but this is, so this is a genuine question. Um, are all of Maz's scenes done with the puppet as well? I don't believe so, no. I think that's um, so they do that with the motion capture um, with the, the dotted mask and everything like that. She certainly for the, uh, for the force awakens. Absolutely. hundred percent. I would not be surprised if they just went puppet for her in this. It just looked a little stiff, but in a good way, I know that I had said at this point I'm about to make, I know I had said it on the Mandalorian podcast yesterday. So if I'm repeating for the most hardcore fans, um, I, I was going to say I apologize. It's such a good uh, bit of info that I got from uh, the Imagineering documentary on Disney Plus that I think it's worth repeating. This notion that the look of Star Wars is something grounded in the 1970s, 1980s in terms of production design, uh, certainly in terms of the physical things that you create, the sets, the switches, all, you know, all the technology. It's made from that stuff that's around. It's not. It doesn't look right when it's 
all due respect, I guess, to Attack of the Clones, when you have a completely digital set with a completely digital character and everything is perfect, like on Kamino, it doesn't quite look real, A, because it's not really real, and B, it doesn't look Star Wars real because you're used to, you know, you're used to somebody took a, what, what's the lightsaber hilt? You know, it's like the, the, the holder for a flat, uh, professional photography light yeah. or something like that, you know. There's all that kind of, clicky touchy feely stuff that's from the 70s and 80s with babu frick maybe i'm wrong about Maz, but with babu frick i think you get hammered home there's something star wars that is the jiggle of a puppet and the imperfections that come with that i personally would argue you know particularly in light of uh dark crystal on netflix you get when you get great puppeteers you also get emotion Mm-hmm. that overcomes the jiggle or overcomes the fact that you have a wrist that can bend this way and this way, but not that way. And, and it kind of, it looks like star Wars. It looks like star Wars when it's a puppet, even though you could have made Babu Frick a lot more expressive or a lot more jumping around or, you know, again, I don't mean to beat up on the prequels Yoda um, with the lightsaber duel. It's really, really cool. Babu Frick comes across better being, glued to the platform that he's on or the pile of bolts that he's on because the pile of bolts are a platform to hide right. the, the the puppetry you know there's just something that's star wars real about it and the voice and the enthusiasm and the, the repetition of that and this past that poe dameron has had with zori and babu as a as a unit that that's a story I want to see told that he was running spice and eventually becomes the co-general of this resistance that, that topples the, the final order. So, you know, you, you, you get all that and surely there'll be no more said there, right? Pete, again, star Wars at its best is this thing that is bigger than the story that gets told. Where's my Zori bliss one shot. Where's my, Where's my Zori Bliss episode on the Disney Plus Star Wars anthology series that I think should get made? It's such a great... She is such a great character. Um, To be completely honest, Pete, I knew Carrie Russell was in the film. Get to the very, very end, and it's like, wait, who's Zori Bliss? Like, I had not made the connection that that was her. Thus is the mystery of the character. My goodness, Pete, it's a Star Wars character who wears a mask who's mysterious and we want to learn more. Like... Such a great character. I want that backstory. I want the continuing adventures. Give that to me. All due respect, Kathleen Kennedy. Don't give me Solo, A Star Wars Story 2. Give me six episodes with Zori Bliss in the modest uh, production accommodations of The Mandalorian where she's out on her own or this, that, the other. That's the story I want. Right, because it's not as if we don't have that platform now. And, you know, certainly bears mentioning... On Kajimi as well, we get a, a, a Johnny Williams baby uh, cameo for the first time in this nine episodes. You consider just his indelible mark as a composer, uh, the most honored uh, screen music presence ever. And uh, his cameo here as uh, Uma Trez. Uh, which is an anagram for uh, maestro. I mean, a perfect moment. John Williams, 87 years old. Uh, I know we had spoken 
at some point on some podcast, you know, he was on uh, 60 Minutes uh, this past fall, and I had kind of assumed, based on maybe just some of the behind-the-scenes stuff um, for The Force Awakens, I just kind of assumed that he had faded a little bit, and sure, the music was by John Williams, but maybe he's got six orchestrators helping him, and it's like, oh, John, did you mean this? I got it for you. No, 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 John Williams more vital at 86, more present, more cognizant than I think most of us are most of the time. And that said, John Williams has less years ahead of him than he does behind him. That I think we can say with respect but confidence. To get his moment in the final Star Wars movie uh, of this nine, in what he has said is his final Star Wars movie, it's just heartwarming beyond belief. And again to look to the future it will only become more heartwarming when time catches up with him as it does with all of us it, it, that indelible presence there is going to just live forever just as his music always will yeah the the atmosphere that it provides and as a great backdrop to the continued use and evolution of the force bond established in the previous film between Ray and Kylo Ren and the duel they have and the different locations between the Star Destroyer where she's around Darth Vader's helmet and she's trying to get the uh, the information that the dagger uh, from his room on the Star Destroyer and where he's down on Kajimi and he can't tell where she is and they're interacting with things around them. He lightsabers the the pot of berries and they spill out into his room she touches the uh the the helmet and suddenly it's on the ground on the planet yeah uh to me no worries that we haven't seen this sort of thing before except we kind of saw the very beginnings of it in the last jedi and i don't recall anybody complaining then that it was new powers um it's just as you say, Pete. It's oh, evolution. they complained then that there were new powers. Yes, they did. <laughs> okay, fair they, enough. They they still are. Um, but again, it's this evolution. Kylo Ren is more powerful than Darth Vader, uh, at least by some metrics. You know, the stopping of a blaster bolt and things like that. Uh, it's okay to evolve. I think that's the underlying angst of this decade or decade plus of of nostalgic properties being brought back, being reimagined, being continued, whatever it might be, is it's okay for things to grow. Um, maybe that speaks to a larger cultural thing of, no, don't grow. I'm, I like it when it's not all those people who are unlike me who are doing things. And maybe that's an underlying angst for some people. I don't know. I, I do suspect the Venn diagram of, I hate Star. I hate current Star Wars. I hate current Star Trek. And here's my views on the goings on in the world. I suspect there's. It's not so much a Venn diagram as two circles right on top of each other. But I digress. It's okay for these things to evolve, and you see in this movie, a, uh, the use of these powers in a really inventive story way, like the fact that he's able to pull the beads. All right, let's do science scan. Now we know where they are. It keeps pressure on the story, uh, and b. 
there's a little, I don't want to use the phrase hand-waving, but the story explains it by saying, oh, it's a dyad in the forest. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, not everybody, but, you know, it's what's the story's response? Oh, yeah, it's one of those dyads in the forest. That explains it. Well, we hadn't heard of that before, but guess what? It's new territory. It got explained because, Pete, it's a dyad in the forest. That explains it. The high wire act of continuing to make Star Wars films is that they be new enough yet be familiar. And we're back to where we were with the complaints about The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. The critics of The Force Awakens say you remade A New Hope. The critics of The Last Jedi are why you make Star Wars not like my last Star Wars. So which is it going to be? And the High Wire Act completed here. Well, let's go to the Endor system, but not to the forest moon of Endor. We're going to go to the ocean moon of Kef Beer and the rusted remains of the second Death Star, something that was drawn up for The Force Awakens as a potential destination. All right, maybe that's where we saw Kylo Ren go and get the, the helmet uh, on Endor, whatever it would be of Darth Vader and to have this as a vital location to have this really impactful duel that takes place between Ray and Kylo Ren and all of the ramifications because of it. All I know is Pete, I was so worried heading into this movie that we would get neither a death star nor a death star <laughs> cannon uh, because let's not forget people. A New Hope has a Death Star and a Death Star cannon. Empire Strikes Back doesn't has neither. I'm disappointed to say. Return of the Jedi has both. Although I guess the does the, yeah the cannon does fire ultimately mm -hmm. uh, in the prequel trilogy. Um, is there a quick shot of Death Star yes, plans there, in the first there, one? Okay. In Attack of the Clones, there are plans. In uh, Revenge of the Sith, there is a framework. Uh, Death Star being built, yeah, and then we have uh, Star Killer Base, which is Death Star 2.0 with Death Star Cannon 2.0, uh, and then we have the Death Star Cannon on wheels uh, at the end of uh, at the end of uh, the Last Jedi. So the fact that we got both that that made me relieved, Pete, because without a Death Star and or a Death Star Cannon, either you make uh, either you make Episode One or you make The Empire Strikes Back. There is no space in between so i'm glad that we landed in the middle there and it's on kif beer that we're introduced to Jana to a, a company of mutinied stormtroopers so there were others like finn he's not alone and uh you know resonates with that story there and again speaking to this idea that a star wars story is bigger or the Star Wars universe is bigger than any individual story. I wish this bit about mutinied uh, stormtroopers, I wish it was explored more, though to be clear, it was explained enough. Uh, I'm just curious, was this a hiccup in training? Is this the force reasserting itself? Um, you know, again, I don't, I don't mean to always return to, oh, and hopefully in a comic book or a novel, they're going to, they're going to explain this. I think if there's one kind of obvious glaring sin from The Force Awakens, it's C-3PO has a red arm so that you can sell red arm toys and also sell the red arm story. Um, 
not everything needs to be completely answered by a film, nor does everything need to be crass set up for mark marketing and merchandising and all of that. Um, I'm not suggesting that this is this exists solely to do a you know a, a limited run comic book digital release or on Marvel.com or something like that. But I just want to know more. Fascinating character, fascinating story arc for all of them. So echoes of the Force Awakens in Ray's. Uh, entry into the second Death Star. We've got corridors. She's climbing things. There's imperial uh, iconography all over the place. And the uh, the Dark Ray sequence as well. And uh, you, you have to really catch it quick. But um, obviously with where the story goes in terms of her origin and where she could go wrong to give us this glimpse. Uh, you pointed out as we're watching it, oh, it's, it's, it's the cave on, on Dagobah. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what it was. And, I mean, what's the story function of the cave on Dagobah? It's a reminder that sometimes we need to reflect into ourselves to see what the worst could be so that we can find out how to avoid it. It's presented magically in Dagobah. Uh, force magic, whatever you want to call it. It's presented with force magic in this film as well. I thought it was a nice callback and a nice reminder of a couple of things, including everybody in the world knows that in A New Hope, Luke wears what color, Pete? He wears white. And in the next movie, he wears gray. And in the last movie, he wears black. And that we don't need to necessarily go beat for beat. I know her clothes were dirtied in the last one. I took notice right at the beginning of this one. Oh, she's back in white again. Whatever journey we're on, we're not going on the fake out, which worked by and large worked in Return of the Jedi. I'm not going to go for the fake out of, oh no, will she lose her temper? Like this is meant to have an echo of the Luke Skywalker journey, but they're signaling to us that she is capable of making different decisions by virtue of a variety of factors and that that's okay. This does not need to be the shot-for-shot shot remake of the Luke Skywalker arc. I mean, they gave her sharpened teeth as Dark Ray there with that double-ended lightsaber. Uh, a preview of where she'll be at the end of the film in terms of the battle against the Emperor. And then at the very end with her own lightsaber, part of her staff now. But this duel... The, the real turning point in the film where, you know, with the, the tides on the iconic remains of a Death Star, they, they throw down uh, Leia using her last bits of the force and her life to help to turn the tide uh, figuratively against Kylo Ren and begin her son's turn back to the light. Um, and what happens? We have Ray use her healing powers, which she's learned how to do not for the first time, uh, to, to heal him, to save him. We have the really deftly handled, uh, death of Leia. And then, I mean, the, the thing that guts you when you watch this for the first time is Chewie's reaction when they get back. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just, 
I, I, I want to go for the low-hanging fruit and say, oh, it's an emotional callback to closing the blast doors and Empire Strikes Back, but it's just a great use of this character whose language we do not understand, who we, we hear as just emotive growls and grunts, and to cut to the emotion where a character can cry out something eloquent, but to us it sounds like just a an emotional cry out. It's 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 a wonderful moment. And then we get the the, the Harrison Ford cameo shortly thereafter. In my mind, gutsy to bring him back. Uh, and to do so via what is probably a will-o'-the-wisp of the mind. You know, it's Kylo kind of having a self-dialogue slash dreaming it up versus some sort of glowy, the magic of the Force. Yes, maybe there is a Force explanation, but ultimately this was just an earned tip of the hat and character beat that fittingly kind of defies some sort of necessary explanation on how it happened. It just did, Pete, and it, it got us in the hearts. Yeah, and it doesn't need the explanation. And to echo their last real conversation in that the lightsaber becomes the focal point and that he turns back, that he throws the lightsaber back where the Death Star is, rejecting it. Um, but yeah, that Ray has left in his TIE fighter. That, uh, you know, she's attempting to do what Luke had done, taking herself out of the equation and uh, going back to the last location where he was alive. We know this because green and rocks and porgs that uh, she's on the island of Ashto. And I think the lesson there is the lesson that she learns after she throws the lightsaber in and Luke catches it. Oh man, Pete, undoing the throwing away that he did because look, he can, he even in his advanced years, he can learn from mistakes, etc. Uh, but I think the lesson here for Ray, nay, for all of us, if you have the power to act, you can't sit on the sidelines. It was Luke's mistake to have done so. Uh, and Ray is mistaken to try and do that as well. And she, she leaves there with a better sense of purpose and sense of responsibility that she has to the the galactic community so you're telling me matt that the student of obi-wan kenobi who never ever made any mistakes on his own right uh has to be completely immune to flaws again i think people who criticize this movie and these films there's this weird mirror effect of luke can't ever be wrong because i can't ever be wrong Ver and when Luke is wrong, the movie is wrong, not Luke or me. And I think, I think on a certain level, and maybe this is through the relative eyes of the now, but I think these three films are doing a better job about having a dialogue about the world we live in right now than maybe the the original trilogy did. Um, and maybe that was just because the original trilogy was capturing a timelessness. Um, and been there, done that. Now we need to maybe pull from here or do things nowadays like, I don't know, include more women, include more people of color. Maybe, maybe Pete have a, uh, a same-sex kiss at the end, which, you know, I don't, I don't know that Star Wars is going to change the world. But the fact that China did not have that taken out, that's more progress than, than China 
urging that that that, that the small kiss in the background be taken out. Um, you know, we're we're better reflecting the now, even as we try and create stories that are going to be timeless. To assert that the prequels are better than this trilogy of films, I really have to question what you were watching. I really have a soft spot for The Phantom Menace. Um, Attack of the Clones, however, is, is just one poor decision after another. And uh, it's funny, Matt. We never got a space diner in the sequel trilogy. We never had a um, just absolute soup sandwich of a climax on Geonosis with a semi-comical droid factory sequence with uh, C-3PO on a battle droid's body unable to control himself and CGI villains by the tens of thousands in, in bugs and droids and everything there. And is it cool to see Jedi in their heyday in a, in a group fighting in the beginning of the Clone Wars? Yes. But let's remember too, the Clone Wars happened largely off screen. So there's about one story. There's about one movie of story in those prequels. And these three films have a far greater arc and resonance than those. And I, I think that's a bigger disappointment that the, the turn towards Darth Vader wasn't more relevant than I want to save my loved one. And I think I can, if I turn to the dark side. You can like the trilogy films best of all, but that doesn't mean that there aren't problems with your objective sense of cinema taste. I think we can leave it at that. You can like what you like, but that doesn't mean you're right. <laughs> Pete, let's get back squarely to this movie, the the throne room ritual and end battle, the, the sparing way in which we get the strobe effect on the emperor, certainly prior to this, this scene, but in this scene, the the barely seen Sith audience there. Is this the scariest Star Wars scene ever? It's really interesting how they chose to explore this right down to the, the emperors on some kind of like crane arm thing with medical apparatus. And it's like we've talked about the entire podcast we don't need, well, he was magically transported as he uh, descended towards the Death Star reactor core here. We don't need an explanation as to how the magic bad guy is still doing magic bad guy things. You know why, Matt? Because magic bad guy. Uh, I mean, again, totally agree. There is a fantasy element in these films that i think that we forget because there are spaceships but that you know that high fantasy thing of magic because magic it is because we saw it as such um you know it's a great when, when the fight scene does end up happening i totally bought into the idea that he was draining them i mean i didn't think i wasn't actually concerned that both of them were going to get drained to to death but that was effective in and of the moment uh, when the fight 
does happen. It's great. The fact that she has both lightsabers. The fact, Pete, that ultimately she finds in herself the ability to overcome these things. Yes, with training by others. Yes, with tools by others, like, you know, the the, the second lightsaber that uh, Kylo had had. Um, but the fact that at the end of the day, it is Rey against the obstacle, and Rey uses her training, her tools, and herself to overcome that. There is your message, and anybody who's upset by that, let's just be honest, you don't like powerful women. And defies her nature as a Palpatine. What is it? She has to kill the Emperor, who, by being struck down with hate, just like he was urging Luke to do, is then going to magically inhabit her body and she becomes the empress and this painful history continues. And she's not going to bow to the anger. She refuses him. It's echoes of the last Jedi. We're not going to win this, uh, you know, by fighting what we hate. We're going to do it by saving what we love, that she's going to greet him instead with love. They are related uh, it's not, hey, grandpa, throw the throw the lightsaber football around with me in your in your Sith uh, Coliseum here. But she's not going to do that. And to hand off the lightsaber to Ben, who just just this great half shrug against the Knights of Ren and then uh, sequence of taking him, uh, taking them out. And then as they're drained in front of the emperor okay you're not going to play ball i will rejuvenate myself because of this and to tap in at this point to all the jedi who have come before i mean we've got liam neeson's qui-gon jinn we've got two obi-wans there urging her to get up yoda uh mace windu obscure jedi that if you didn't watch the uh, the Clone Wars or didn't watch uh, Star Wars Rebels, you know, we've got Ahsoka Tano, we've got Kanan Jarrus, we've got Jedi from the Clone Wars that, you know, only uber nerds like myself, uh, Leonardo uh, Unduli and, uh, you know, characters like that urging her to rise, the rise of the Skywalker, Matt. Pete, I so evil defeated, etc. Ray brought back. My choice, if I was directing, my choice would have been no kiss. And I spent time thinking about why. And I think it's this. I think here I am coming from a male perspective, a Protestant Christian perspective. Uh, and I think on some level, my initial reaction was, hey, don't go for that bad boy. P.S. I'm a good guy. Why, why you like bad boys, not good guys. Uh, and also, you know, keep yourself pure because you're pure and he's not. And, and the more I thought about it, hey, I'm bringing um, a, a male Christian perspective, um, maybe vaguely informed by, you know, senses of purity and all of that. I can only assume that they shot it multiple ways. Maybe it was even scripted multiple ways, but they, they shot a hug. They shot no kiss. They shot no contact. They shot it, you know, whatever it might be. Here's my takeaway after I kind of decided to reflect about, reflect on myself and how I was perceiving it. She wants to go in for the kiss. You go, girl. You just defeated 
the biggest baddie in the entire galaxy for the last 40 years. Uh, you want to test yourself with the bad boy, not knowing that he's dying, etc. You go get what you want and figure it out. You know, it, I think the story is helped by the fact that there is no and we shall be together because he then he then dies, which I think is a very, very fitting end for Kylo, kind of the universe having him pay for his pay for his crimes in an early death and all that. But Pete, I'm OK with the kiss because she's OK with it. So it only works because he's rejuvenated her the way that she learned to heal him. Uh, so gives that gift back um, and and that he gives himself over to the force that he disappears. That to me, I think, is the only way you can do it. His path was determined from when he killed his father. You look back in every story of patricide. It does not end well. I know there's a very, very vocal group of people who wanted to see the two of them together. I think this was a form of compromise. She is thankful for the gift. She gives him the kiss, not knowing he's going to disappear. And then he does. So she brought him back. She helped him find his way, but he had to pay for it. And he does. And that is a form of reward. And we look in this end scene here where there are rescues of Finn and Janna by the Millennium Falcon. And then we get the reunions back at the resistance base. Everybody gets a moment. We've had some great cameos. We had Wedge show up, Matt. We haven't seen Wedge since Return of the Jedi. We have Admiral Akbar's son as one of the pilots. We see Cloud City with a Star Destroyer falling behind it. We see Ewoks again. They've fought off the final order. And Chewie finally finally gets that hero medal 42 years later it may be fan service but boy there was applause in our theater at that uh, a solid montage of ending here endings here pete my question to you is this did the movie did the story do right by rose and did the movie do right by kelly marie tran so she's among the leaders of the resistance. I don't know where else you're taking and developing her story at this point. I think the critics saying, well, Rise of Skywalker, course correction from Last Jedi, you realize they could have left the character out. They could have not even mentioned her. They could have killed her off screen. And they didn't. They included her. So, I mean, is there a way that so Finn's a general and Poe's a general and she gets named the general as well? That to me feels like you're advancing some form of agenda in that here are two characters who have been there from the start. And now there's another character who hasn't been there as long and she's getting that. She, she's a leader amongst the resistance. She emerges from this story alive. There is 
still the lingering relationship that she has with Finn, that doesn't seem to turn into anything bigger at the end of this film. I guess you can look at it. They, they could have done more, but they did what they did. I, I don't find it to be a slight. I think that the final product of this movie, I, I can say without any sense of trying to sound like I'm going in for a zing, I think that the final product of this movie did not do the character justice and certainly did Kelly Marie Tran dirty. The only offering I will give is this. There needed to be story space created for Carrie Fisher uh, scenes in which Carrie Fisher was not there. I think that's why you get a bit more of um, the character of Snap Wexley. Uh, side note, I think you're all, he also gets puffed up a little bit. So when he dies, it, that's kind of the yeah. linchpin to say, oh man, they're all dying. Same thing with the Dominic Monaghan character there. There's a number of times where Dominic Monaghan's presence is to say, oh wow, you mean such and such? Because you can't have your Carrie Fisher voice actress say something else that's without a close-up on the person speaking. So if you want to tell me in the creation of this final product and the heartbreak along the way of not having Carrie Fisher and needing to create other Carrie Fisher helpers, that that then took time or story or whatever away from the character of Rose, I'll grant you that. I guess my response would also be, Aren't couldn't all the Dominic Monaghan lines have been Rose lines and then she's could. in it more? You know, I, I feel like it's not a great final result in that regard. I don't know. I guess I guess Pete, life like life, nothing's perfect here. Um, but we do get that we do get this big celebration at the end, which that was the first time I started to think about this being the end of this you know trilogy of trilogies. And certainly I hope that there are no complaints uh, about the, the, the universe of celebration here. I mean, we are entering a portion of the story, as I said, where it's celebrating all these movies akin to why does Return of the King have so many endings? No, it doesn't. The Lord of the Rings trilogy has so many endings at the end of the final movie. Same thing here. That's where we're starting to enter in this story. And I don't think it's anywhere near as gratuitous as that. Everybody's back together. Everybody gets a moment. Things are rightfully closed up. You get Ray who touches down in Luke's X-Wing. Um, we've, we've hit all the beats here. I, I think we've still got that lingering idea of Finn, of his potential with the Force, that there's a future for him. Um, you know, I know John Boyega has said very recently that he doesn't want them to Disney plus him. Um, I don't know why you wouldn't want to have instead of a two hour, uh, a six hour trilogy uh, situation that you could do this across eight hours in a couple seasons of a Disney plus show. I mean, it's not as if the Mandalorian isn't outrageously successful. Pete, John Boyega, a young man at 27. Uh, Ewan McGregor at 27 was gearing up for not just doing Star Wars films, but, you know, massive movie career. And if you are a movie star that is still 
you know, that still is the tippity top of the entertainment world. Fast forward to Ewan McGregor in his 40s. He's 48 now. You know, Emmy winner for Fargo, a TV actor, TV and film back and forth. Um, Ewan McGregor finding out that on the the other side of your 30s, you take the really compelling, interesting jobs that come your way. And sometimes they're go to Canada and play two twins and win an Emmy. Sometimes they're put on the, the, the cloak again, play Obi-Wan for TV. All I can say is this, Pete, John Boyega, see you in four years on Disney Plus for your Finn, your awesome Finn, early 30s, action-packed story where, it, you know, at the end of it, it's going to be his own force journey. And Pete, did you hear the rumors? I heard the rumors that at, at the season finale of, of The Finn Show, I heard Ray shows up. It's going to be fantastic it's going to be in that amount of time that we need don't disney plus me how about john boyega you got a disney plus date with disney plus destiny plus <laughs> and it's not a slight at all i mean that's a wonderful future idea to return to if the star wars movies are smart you know where will we go next? We we know of all these series that are coming. The the Kenobi one is is gearing up and getting ready to cast. They are shooting season two of The Mandalorian. Seems like the Cassian Andor one, at least on official announcements, is kind of stalled. It doesn't mean it's it's going away or anything like that. And they may be getting ready to cast. Um, but the, the film future, and supposedly there's going to be an announcement in January of the next film, which is currently slated for Christmas uh, 2022, and a director. Um, and this would seem to be independent of the, the Ryan Johnson trilogy, which still exists, uh, is, is not been taken away or gone away or whatever you might, uh, you know, choose to believe but the the nostalgia angle and the ability to revisit things at any point in the continuum of these before we continue to go further into the future and probably and i think smartly into places and spaces we've never been either really really far in the past or further ahead and, and farther away but i mean I think at some point, if if Millie Bobby Brown isn't having a meeting at some point about playing a young Princess Leia and and telling a story we've never seen of her early adventures as a you know rebellion uh, beginner a, a rebellion uh, uh, stalwart, then that's really not due diligence. And I guess just wrapping up this film, we have the uh, new home of Tatooine for Rey, uh, who, after an extended pause, names herself as Rey Skywalker. I felt that this scene was perfectly edited, a perfect ending. Everyone in the audience knew what she was going to say, yet the pause was earned. Uh, The lightsaber, the yellow lightsaber triumphant, and just, you know, just a perfect way to end this film, this trilogy, and the series of trilogies. I mean, the the simple symbolism coming back to the Lars homestead. There's there's sand covering things. I hate sand, by the way, Matt. It, it gets everywhere. But I digress. 
um, burying the lightsabers with the force. Really, really uh, well done there. And then let, let's look back. There are people who are saying you killed off all the Skywalkers and you made her a Skywalker. You made a Palpatine a Skywalker. But let's look at the one through nine evolution. We have this phantom menace. We have this wannabe emperor at the very beginning, evil and manipulative to the core, who ultimately gets that, gets seemingly overthrown. But even in what appears like death, this state is able to come back. And he has a child, a son, uh, father's Ray, uh, chooses to be nobody because does not want to be like the father and she does not when she knows wants to be like her grandfather and what's the upshot so the skywalker bloodline ends with ben solo and there are no heirs but you have a palpatine defy her nature and choose to carry on as skywalker because that's never happened in human history right that a family dies out and somebody could identify as wanting to have been a member of that family. So to me, it works. It's eloquent. We've got the force ghosts there of Luke, of Leia looking on down to the, the binary sunset of BB-8 and Ray in front of it. And it's, it's the most logical yet the most satisfying way to leave these characters, at least for right now. Pete, this podcasting dyad, of course, not alone. Let's now hear from the voices of those all around us, all those who have come before us. Uh, our poll on Twitter had uh, the following choices. One star, strong gals equal stare, scary. Pete, I'm surprised 8.8% of people went for that but they did uh two stars bantha Pudu got 20.6 percent three stars what have we here 23.5 percent and four stars they did it 47.1 percent and i think that's pretty much in line with what we're seeing of uh the audience feedback in general uh we also had a tweet pete from Disney underscore SPN underscore fan MCU comma Star Wars and Winchester's always. That's at Disney underscore SPN underscore fan. Pete, gotta love people who love multiple things. Yes. that's We, we live in this world where you can love Disney and um, I'm not quite sure what SPN is. Um, I think it's Supernatural. Supernatural, there you go. And MCU and Star Wars and Winchester. It, it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, the response there, loved the rise of Skywalker. It made me laugh and cry. There were so many funny and heartfelt moments. What an amazing end to 42-year-long journey. Have to say, three C- C-3PO, my misstatement there, not the, the tweeters. C-3PO, still my fave. And I don't think you can come away from this and, and not still hold on to him as a favorite character uh let's now head to mike Sorensen uh sharing the following a second novel from me to you uh to read in a week my apologies for that mike no need to apologize mike saying i'm planning a second viewing probably later this weekend so some of these thoughts could change but this is where i land after the first viewing this movie lands for me right alongside the force awakens there's a great story in this movie somewhere 
but J.J. Abrams seemed to have seems to have an obsession for just rushing around. It's not an issue of plotting or pacing that's rushing; it's the story itself. Hey guys, we're over here. Quick, back to base. Now we've got to rush off somewhere else. Oh, here we are, but we need to go over there. There's no time to let the story breathe and build because it's just so much motion. Love it or hate it, take the Canto Bite scene from The Last Jedi. There's a lot going on, but there's still a few moments, a few beats where they slow down, where we learn a bit of Rose's backstory again. Uh, backstory. Again, like that story or not, the breathing room was there in a way that is absent for both of the Abrams films. A few more nitpicky, uh, geeky things. The fleet command thing at the end, it made no sense. They were broadcasting from a ground station. Ground uh, station is threatened, so they switched to the ship-based antenna immediately. But when the ship-based antenna is, is attacked, they throw their hands up? Why didn't the super admiral general guy say, hey, hey, uh, they unloaded all their horse thingies on our hull. Quick, switch back to the ground antenna. They can't get loaded back up very fast. Or even better, if you have unlimited funds, put that antenna on, say, one out of ten ships and then pick one up at random to be uh, the relay. To, par- to paraphrase the Lord Dark Helmet, the rebels always win because the Empire is dumb. The last big gripe was Chewbacca getting the medal. Side note, did anyone actually call him Chewbacca? Lando maybe? Or was it always Chewie? Maybe, maybe this scene would have landed a little better if it had been Peter Mayhew in the, uh, Mayhew in the costume. But even then, it's a stretch. It was just so blatantly heavy-handed. This would have been the very first scene I would ax for the home video release. There's plenty I enjoyed, however. The return of Lando left some questions, but it doesn't really matter. Billy D. Williams was fantastic, and I was glad to have him back. I really loved the new Stormy Deserters, even if they didn't bother introducing any of them but one, barely. The only thing I would have done differently here isn't to have had them be random deserters. When they had Finn introduce himself, one or two lines of dialogue here. You're him. We heard about you, the stormtrooper who abandoned the First Order to join the Resistance. You inspired us, and many more. That would have felt earned and would have given Finn an incredible arc. Heat side note. Good observation there. Good edit from yeah, Mike. Yeah. I mean, we've had that with Rose, though. So, yeah. Uh, wrapping up Mike's thoughts here. However they did it, however many zeros it took on the check, whatever it took to get Dennis Lawson back on the screen <laughs> as Wedge Antilles was worth all of it. All the kicking and screaming over all three of these films, for me, paid off in those two seconds of screen time. Now, someone tell Disney Plus to grab the Michael Stackpole X-Wing books and give me that series. I know I have more thoughts. I'm sure I'll have even more later, but I'll close this down for now and let you guys sleep or record another podcast or whatever you do on your downtime. Cheers again. Pete, that from Mike. And, you know, Mike is an enormous Star Wars fan, and I I think you have to take him at his word with everything that he put there. Uh, the, the antenna thing makes sense, but again, story, drama. If, could you imagine how silly it would be if they, they kept moving that around and then the, the final order would, would truly be uh, undefagatable? I, I can't argue around Mike's point. All I will say is, once again... Uh, the Empire and the Star Wars universe is hampered by lousy hardware software interface. You know, if they just had Dropbox in Rogue One, it would have been, I have the plans. Ba-doop. Okay, they're up to loaded to your Dropbox. Uh, ditto for A New Hope, come to think of it. Oh man, they uploaded it. All right, let's go attack the thing now. So I guess built into the universe is 
a series of poor hardware decisions. Uh, I don't know, Pete, maybe this is what happens when it's, it's not even Mac versus Windows. It's like in the Star Wars universe, Nokia is Nokia is the one that won. <laughs> I don't know. Next email up, Pete, is from our pal, Dr. Robert Keeley, who says as follows. Hi, Matt and Pete. It will take me a little while yet and perhaps another viewing or two to really absorb the rise of Skywalker. When I finished watching it, I felt like I enjoyed it, although I wasn't as blown away as I was with The Force Awakens. But I knew that it was mostly about my expectations and needing to process it more. Now that nearly 24 hours have passed, I'm finding more things that I like. I like the family connection at the end, the double meaning of the rise of Skywalker. Is it Ben? Is it Ray? I like how Lando coming in to save the day matches episode uh, six. I like how Ben sacrifices himself for Ray. I like how Palpatine turns out to be the big bad guy in all three trilogies. While it was on, though, I never felt the rush or glee I felt while watching the others. So, while I liked it, I'm not sure how it's going to stack up uh, against the others for me in the long run. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Pete, that from Bob. Thank you, Bob. Um, I think Bob dealing there a little bit with something that we're all dealing with, the notion of the new versus these other movies that we've seen so many times. Um, and I think certainly time, uh, time will tell Pete, Bob reminds me of a, of a genuine question I have for you about Lando. Okay. End of the movie, Lando talking to Jana. Does he become a mentor or do they both mutually decide to go back to the crew quarters area and, you know, Billy D. Williams? Well, that is even more complicated, Matt, in the they would seem to be related. The visual dictionary talks about how uh, Lando had a daughter who went missing, uh, believed to be conscripted by the First Order. Where did Janna come from? Now, I, I think it's foolish to make the assumption that because they look like one another in terms of their race, that they are related. There's obviously more going on in terms of story servicing that may have been cut and it never makes the screen, but that there is written material that suggests that she is the daughter and there were uh, the idea of uh, Lando and her being related out there. Okay, it's a thing. I like the way they give it to us on screen. And that to me is always the most official that he's going to help her that, uh, Hey, we'll, we'll go find your, your people. And if not, you have people here now. Moving on, Pete, an email from Tom, dear fantastic geek, the rage I feel over this movie and how it's being treated is through the roof. The sheer gall that they had to open with the dead speak. It just amazes me. How dare they reference our dear president's fake impeachment this week? The whole movie has been constructed to make our president the, uh, by the villain. Reading was put here. Add to it the very clear neutering of males in the fake freedom fighters attack uh, the final order cannons. Talk about a lefty dream. Now, Pete, let me pause Tom's words here. Have you heard about this theory? No. Okay, so there's this theory. I read about it earlier today after I got this email, there's this theory that the destruction of the Death Star slash Starkiller cannons, you know, that are on the Final Order uh, Star Destroyers, that that's supposedly 
cutting off the male members of gun owners. Oh my god. I mean, who who is sitting and dreaming up these metaphors? I, I just they're obsessed with being slighted. And male members and guns or something, but uh, Pete back to Tom's words here. Uh, this is why there's a petition to fire Kathy Ken- Kalfi Kennedy. I think he meant Kathy. This is why true patriots are being directed to see other movies this weekend, like Cats. <laughs> Wait, can you just read that sentence again in isolation? <laughs> sure. This is why true patriots are being directed to see other movies this weekend, like Cats. Catriots? Uh, maybe. Uh, Tom wrapping up by saying, I predict failure for Star Wars, period. Pete, that from Tom Cantello in Utah. Tom, I think you need to pause the recording. If you've made it this far, um, I think you need to seek some professional help. Pete, what feedback do you have on your end? All sorts, Matt. We will begin with longtime listener to the podcast, uh, JJ uh, Jeffrey Allen John Cox. Um, who uh, writes in to Fantastic Geek, sent us a message here. I love seeing Ghost and the Mandalorian gauntlet fighters in the finale fight, but Wedge showing up to say, nice shot, Lando, did it for me. About, I'm a, I about geeked out in the theater. Yeah, I mean, those little touches really do count for a lot, don't they? They do. They do. Dan, the webmaster, writes in, Hi, Matt and Pete. I enjoyed ROS, Rise of Skywalker, and I thought it a fitting end to the trilogy. Not a lot of new mythology and tons of old characters, so I can understand people having issues with that. But the audience I was with loved it, and lots of gasps, cheering, and applause at the end. Yeah, I think I, I know there's some video making its way online of, um, you know, people booing. And if that's a true video, OK, fine. This is a fun movie, Pete. It does not necessarily fall short if it doesn't redefine your life. Um, and I, I think that's what uh, that's what the listener there is saying. It was an audience that enjoyed it. James Killen writes in Rise of Skywalker was amazing. The visuals were impressive and the action sequences were magical. I look forward to many rewatches. I enjoyed the characters' chemistry and was glad the story took turns that weren't overly predictable. As a fan of the novels, legends, and canon, it was nice to see Rey, Kylo, and Palpatine get powered up and show us some new Force powers. Anakin was born into a galaxy with less than uh, 10,000 Jedi, a number reduced from centuries past when they weren't celibate how much could luke have learned and passed down about the full extent of force abilities star wars should always offer up something new or what's the point there was a moment where ray and kylo were fighting for control of the transport and it looked like they were both at star killer level from the force unleashed i was expecting a last airbender type moment where legions of them show up in her mind's eye but the voices alone were great i hated the kiss but it somehow felt okay when he ghosted weird theory but could a baby have been created as he gave her his life force 
Overall, it was a satisfying end to the Skywalker saga and the Sith line from Bane to Sidious. The Republic, Empire, and First Order are gone, so how will the galaxy regroup? Don't hate me, but I think Rogue One is the best film because it's all about what normal people have to sacrifice for our heroes to save the day. Rise of Skywalker drives that home with the people, not a fleet, showing up when all seems lost. Speaking of heroes, thanks for all you guys do. 180 episodes and counting for 2019 is amazing. I'm slightly behind on Runaways, but I've listened to everything and you never fail to make this content better. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, James. Well, thank you, James. And uh, I know 2020, we will do a little less. This is the high watermark that might not be, you know, Pete, this is our The Force Awakens, and it might be a little less and a little less after that, but uh, <laughs> certainly tons of fun in what we're doing. I love how James points out, you know, there was a less than fully functional um, Jedi Order in the prequels, in part because they were so dogmatic, in part because here are the rules and there's no flexibility to them, there's no adaptation to them. Kind of like Star Wars, you need, it, you need that adaptive nature for it to continue to grow, otherwise it'll be stale. Right. Steve Adams writes in, I thought Rise of Skywalker was good, not great. It was a lot better than The Last Jedi, though. This was a largely satisfying conclusion to the story. I always felt, hoped, that Ren's revelation of Ray's parentage was a red herring, and I was partially correct. The plot was a little too quick-paced, as it felt like they were trying to tell two movies worth of story in one movie. A lot of good development was left out in favor of quickly advancing the overall story. This movie did suffer a bit from the death of Carrie Fisher, as it felt like there were a lot of spots where she was supposed to be contributing more. They did well with what they had, but her death clearly impacted the final product. I wish we could have had more of her. The resolution was good, the return of Palpatine was adequately explained, and Luke received a much better treatment here than in The Last Jedi. Again, not a great movie, but well worth the wait. Now, back to The Mandalorian. That's right. More Star Wars on the space radar, to be sure. So hopefully that's a pattern that can continue. New movies, new TV shows, etc. Now, Pete, let's hear some audio from Robert Monroe. Hello, Matt and Pete and fantastic family. This is Rob from Virginia with my review of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. I like this movie. It's a good polished end to the saga. I like the callbacks to A New Hope especially 3PO repeating the line, did you hear that, which is his first line, and the first line spoken uh, in A New Hope. I liked the work they did with Carrie Fisher's footage. I think if this had been written as a part for her as a live actress, it wouldn't be a good part because she doesn't say anything particularly relevant to the plot. It's It's... All things like, be an optimist and talk to me when you get back. Little generalizations like that that can be dropped into dialogue that, uh, where other people are doing the work of moving the story along. Given what they had to work with, they did a fantastic job, and I think her death and sacrifice were very moving. I like the new droid. He's an example of uh, them bringing new things into this movie 
like the force healing, which we see in the Mandalorian, but you have to watch that to know that force healing is a thing. It's not seen in any of the other saga movies. But it's important to Kylo's sacrifice at the end, so they seed it with Rey doing it twice, and that's where Kylo learns how to do it, and he gives back to her what she gave to him, uh, completing that little circle. Uh, so that's that's a small gripe I have with the movie that they're they're bringing in new things that hadn't been seen before, uh, uh, but they make it work on their own terms because everything that's important is set up as the movie goes along, and so it's a well-rounded, polished end to a saga. I love the sound design, and particularly the music, the force music while Ray is healing Kylo turns from the triumphant force music to something very ominous as he is healed. And it's little touches like that that really make the movie move along. It does throw into relief that The Last Jedi was kind of half-finished, that the Rey and Kylo arc was fine and fully developed, but the Finn arc was an afterthought. They had to keep him busy doing something, so they had him run off and do a side trip I think that they should have had Phasma chasing him through all that so that she was not brought on stage just to be killed. And that was a waste of her as a character. The, the Poe arc has, is fine, but not all the pieces are there. It needed a few extra clips to show the Admiral's motivation and her connection to Leah and that to really throw home that Poe was making a mistake so that when he learns that he made a mistake, that it was more significant to us. But that's a gripe for a previous movie. I love the saga. I've grown up with it since I was four. And I am very happy with this entry. I'm also very happy with this podcast. And everyone listening out there, if we all rise up as the Rebels did, we can keep Fantastic Geek on the air for many years to come. Thank you. Well, thank you, Rob. Uh, knowing that we have the resistance, the rebellion behind us, I, I don't know if we can possibly fail. And Pete, he mentions uh, the Poe arc there, something that I don't believe we talked about, you know, in the previous two hours now that we've crossed, uh, or Rob has helped us cross past the two-hour mark here. Uh, your thoughts on the revelation of Poe's dastardly past? I mean, I'm I'm fine with it. He ran Spice. He got into the resistance. He's doing the right thing. He rose to Leia's right hand and now is co-leading this resistance. Uh, it, it all works. We're told this stuff on screen. I think it's fine. Pete, next up on the hollow phone, it's J.T. Atkins. Gentlemen, J.T. Atkins here with just a couple thoughts about the Rise of Skywalker. I love the movie. Um, I think it is in the spirit of Return of the Jedi in terms of tone, and I think there's a reason for that. Uh, I remember when the wonderful J.J. Abrams series Alias ended. Um, it was a series full of twists and turns and lots of dark, awful things happening to Jennifer Garner's main character. And in the finale, she gets this incredible happy ending. Things are wrapped up. Things are beautiful just in every way. And I remember seeing someone interview J.J. after that, and they said, why didn't you do, like, one last awful twist or turn? And he said, look, I'm not going to thank the people who stuck with us for, I think it was five seasons, by at the end sticking my thumb in their eye. Everybody wants her to be happy. We're going to make her happy at the end of the show. And I think 
especially knowing that J.J. was a lifelong fan of Star Wars. I think that's what he wanted to do with Star Wars. He wanted to wrap, he wanted to have fun, which Jedi was certainly fun, and he wanted us all to be happy. I also think there's still a sort of uh, universe building thing going on where it's wrapped up in a way that our main characters are not like part of government. We don't have to deal with that if there are stories that come after this. The, uh, and yeah, everybody's in a good place, and I think they're setting up, hopefully, Someday, like Disney Plus series, uh, you know, you can, have a, you can have a Ray adventure, even if it's just a limited run series, or Ray and Finn, or um, Finn and Rose, or whatever, or Poe and the Helmet Girl. Um, <laughs> I'm not very good with Star Wars names. Uh, yeah, so I think it was amazing and terrific, and I also think that J.J. Abrams should get a special Oscar uh, as the bra- one of the bravest men in Hollywood because he has taken on Star Wars and Star Trek two franchises with some of the loudest, whiniest fans around. Although I think most fans are great, there are certainly some loud ones who, well, you know the rest. Uh, So, great movie. Loved it. Pete, then JT called back with more wise thoughts. One last thing. Some people, of course, still like to complain that this movie, much like Episode Seven. Uh, is kind of like a recap in a way, in some ways, of, in this case, Return of the Jedi. I don't think that's really true entirely. And also, I don't think, uh, I think it might be intentional that they are covering the same themes. A lot of things over the years have gotten developed lore about the Emperor living or whatever. And I think in some ways they're tidying up the Star Wars universe and making it fun in a way that could have been done if Episode 7, 8, 9 had been made after 4, 5, and 6. But since they weren't, we have new characters, sort of a new start, some of the same themes that need to be taken care of. What do you do about the Sith? What do you do about this? What do you do about it? So we can get done with all of that in a satisfying way, and now going forward, have maybe some of these characters doing other things and not be in a universe where it's once again the Sith versus the Jedi, and we can do other fun things. So I think it's intentional and smart. There you go. Love the idea from uh, JT about uh, special Oscar for J.J. Abrams. And when you factor in that um, his wife was really, really against him initially taking on Star Wars and then he returns to Star Wars, uh, hopefully everything's been set right in the Abrams household. Um, He's done two of each, though, and you know, his, his contribution, I was thinking of this the other day. Um, Lucas has directed four Star Wars movies, the original, the three prequels. J.J. Abrams directed two thirds of a trilogy and he's done half of what uh, George Lucas has done. Now, he's not produced, uh, you know, so many of the films and all that, but it's still pretty impressive. And I don't think there'd be anybody else in Hollywood who really would have been equipped other than J.J. Uh, Abrams to do that. So that's that's saying an awful lot. That and if we're going to get Falcon and the Winter Soldier as a Disney Plus series for, you know, what happens with uh, with those characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, I really like the idea of Poe and the Helmet Girl. He's, he's referring, of course, to uh, Zori Bliss. Well, Pete, on J.J. Abrams, let's not forget, too, that 
uh, he had an exclusive contract with Paramount Pictures uh, for which he... Uh, I, I don't think that the first Star Trek movie was done under his exclusive contract. I think uh, the second Star Trek movie was. Then they let him go away to do stu- two Star Wars movies uh, while still under exclusive contract, but they let him go because Paramount wants to make it clear that they're totally cool peeps. So this now completes J.J. Abrams' time making movies for Paramount in which he made more movies for Disney than he did Paramount and now no longer has a contract with Paramount but has, you know, has different contracts here, there, and everywhere. So good job, Paramount. You paid this guy to not make movies for you. But Pete, now let's turn to our emperor from across the Netherlands regions. It is Fred. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for The Rise of Skywalker, which I watched in a movie theater yesterday evening, 19th of December. It was a so-called new 3D laser version. And I have to say, I always have a little problems with 3D, but this was quite okay. It was not so... Tiresome. I think 3D sometimes can be tiresome for your eyes, but it was quite okay. First thing I want to say is I discovered I'm a Trekkie. I didn't watch other Star Wars movies as preparation because I had no time because there were so many other things to watch and give feedback to, especially last weekend. So I didn't prepare properly. And then I just noticed that in the world building of Star Wars, I'm not so fully informed and knowledgeable as in the Star Trek world. One of the reasons why I like The Mandalorian, because those stories are quite, well, simple and restricted to just episode of the week fashion. And there was a nice commercial about The Mandalorian Ahead of the movie, of course. The way the movie was made, special effects, etc. was, of course, stunning. Very, very nice. I had one... No, I had more nitpicks. But one nitpick was when this Jenna and and Finn were on the outside of the commanding Empire ship. I thought, aren't they in space? How can they breathe there? Was was this all in, in the sky and not in space? I didn't get that. I recognized, by the way, this Jenna from a series I watched with my wife, The End of the, and then you get an F-bomb, World. Fortunately, the main factions, the Empire and the Rebellion, are clear, so in general you can follow the film, but all the sub-fractions and references to other worlds and to things that happened in the past, yeah, I am not enough in the Star Wars world. Obviously living under a Star Wars rock somehow. I really look forward to your podcast, so you can explain it all to me. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Well, Fred is not living under a rock, and if he is, Ray would levitate it away and uh, liberate Fred. Um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised uh, Fred is not as knowledgeable about the Star Wars universe. I, I know he's a big contributor when we do uh, Star Trek Discovery, and I'm sure he's going to be with us uh, for uh, Star Trek Picard um, and and following that world. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think uh, hit, hit all the beats here. And uh, 
he referenced that in his viewing experience uh, in the Netherlands, they had a commercial for Mandalorian. I was convinced that one of the official trailers uh, was going to be for the Mandalorian or Disney Plus, and we didn't get that. I will mention, at least in the Lowe's theater where we saw it, um, there were 28 minutes of whether full-on previews or, you know, the little lights are still up kind of sneak peeks that they show 28 minutes between the 6:30 start time and the actual start of the movie um so certainly plenty of room i think there was maybe a passing disney plus commercial even before that but uh fred clearly the beneficiary of a, of a clear linear marketing push there in the netherlands so certainly some of that uh some of that efficiency there and on the ship that Finn and uh, Janet were on, they did say that that was in atmosphere, that they were above. So that's why they could breathe. They weren't in space. There were special conditions above the inverted pyramid on Exegol. So, Pete, here we are two hours, 12 minutes into this podcast, at least in a couple seconds, it'll be 12 minutes all of this made possible by what uh, what uh, Mr. Monroe had mentioned is the entire rebellion resistance who supports us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. And uh, we are in this together and we are in this together because of those people and the support that they show. I am going to have a very hard time not imagining all these ships showing up every time we open up the Patreon page to see the support from the signals we've sent throughout the galaxy and all these people showing up, but, but we still need you to show up. You can't stay on the sidelines there. Everybody who contributes to patreon.com slash fantastic geek gets access to exclusive podcast content, even more coming takes just a dollar a month to get you in that door, a mere quarter a week. And you get in your space vehicle and help us when we need it most. And our thanks, as always, Pete, all those goodies there on the Patreon page. And even today, we were texting back and forth plans for plans for a plan, shall we say, on, uh, on Patreon in 2020. But the best goodie, that's a freebie that's talking to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,973 followers can't be wrong and while i am personally on twitter is looking back lost do be in touch with the podcast comment on fantasticgeek.com check us out on twitter instagram gmail where we are fantastic geek as well but wait pete there's more facebook.com slash fantastic geek with a ph all one word like it today well pete i know when next we will be talking about the star wars universe and that is next weekend with the season finale of mandalorian pete some surprise that it was only eight episodes long although none of our listeners surprised uh but still a little more star wars to go then of course if you're listening on the pop culture podcast feed we're continuing to make our way through runaways and uh between now and roughly the end of the uh the end of the calendar year then looking ahead in january to star trek picard so pete from star wars content new to star trek content new the best of times indeed with that pete i will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final rise of skywalker nine movie double triple trilogy word be with me be with me 